Hey friends, welcome to the Nurse Pod. I'm your host, Nurse V, and welcome to the very first episode, episode one, woohoo, of this entire series where we're going to be talking about nursing, healthcare, social justice issues, and everything in between. So in this episode, we're going to be talking about what brought me into nursing. And the timeline of this episode is equivalent to washing your dishes, walking your dog around the corner, and maybe half an episode of Avatar The Last Airbender. If you're not watching it on Netflix, I don't know what you're doing with your time, but maybe you're listening to this podcast, so give it a go. So sit back, relax, and let's get to nursing. So if I were to travel back in time, let's say six, seven years, saying to my younger self, hey, V, you know what? You're going to be a nurse. I would be completely delirious. I'd be like, wait, what? Me? A nurse? Heck no. Never thought about it. Never wanted to become a nurse. Never in a million years. In fact, at that time, I wanted to be a journalist. Um, And so nursing was one of those non-traditional route for me. It was a second calling. It was a second career choice. So let's go back into time, back into the year 2011. Actually, hold up. Let's go back to 2009. So starting in 2009, I just finished taking uh, classes over at community college and I got accepted to UC Davis um, as a bio major. And let me tell you something. Going from community college straight to UC Davis was a completely different ballgame, okay? Because here I was, so used to the semester program. And then going to uh, UC Davis, it was all quarter system, okay? Let alone the teaching style, the didactic, the whole structure of a university versus community college is very, very universally different. In a community college, you're used to being in a space of 20 to 30 students, right? And so you can talk to your classmates a lot easier. If you need to talk to your teacher after class, they're much more approachable. But over at UC Davis, when you're in a giant lecture hall, you've got around 200 to 300 students, right? There's no way in hell you can talk to your your professors, right? You need to schedule an office hours. And most of the time, these professors, they love just, you know, teaching and then they'll just go straight to their research so they got time with their students you got to deal with their ta and really that wasn't very conducive to my learning i i'm a very slow learner and by all means like i need to learn all the ins and outs of something that i'm learning um to really grasp a fuller understanding of what it is and one of the the topic that really kind of screwed me over was biochemistry It was biochemistry and it was other science courses that really pulled my GPA to a point where I was going to basically be dropped out of UC Davis. So two quarters in and I was placed on academic probation. Not something to brag about, but I was at a turning point where I really need to decide, okay, look, listen, if I'm going to graduate out of UC Davis, I know I can't keep up being a bio major. I need to switch up something um, that is much more manageable. Hmm, maybe if I switch over to a liberal arts, that would be a lot more easier. Maybe if I switch as an English major, I'll pass. Because what could be much more harder than science? Definitely not English, right? Uh Uh-uh. I was completely a major elitist. Let me tell you that. 
English and biology are two separate things. You don't compare those two. Those are two different beasts of its own. Let me tell you something. So before I switch over to English, I needed to make sure that I was making the right decision. So I I went to talk to I went to talk to a psychologist because I was um I wasn't I was scared. I mean, I was scared that like I'm making the wrong decision. Uh, I w- I needed to learn like was there something that I, that I can do to maybe just continue taking bio. Not only was I talking to psychologists, but the reason why I was talking to psychologists was because I needed someone to understand that when you're coming from an Asian family, they're not going to like the idea that you're going to be a liberal arts major. So I needed some type of validation. So I needed some professional counseling, right? When I talked to psychologist, she says, "Wait, is that it? That's your that's your concern?" Um, oh, well, you're not, that's not that bad. Let me tell you something. If you ever get yourself in a patient care and you say something like that, that is very unvalidating. So that's not a very uh, therapeutic form of communication. So just take that as a pro tip. Okay, so I knew that I needed to confront my final beast, and that is my mother, (laughs) okay? My mom. For all you Asian families out there or just families who come from, you know, an immigrant background, you know that they want nothing but sheer success for you. And that is exactly my mom. She is a straight up tiger mom and she wants every success that she can get for her kids. So what it means that if I'm going to tell my mom, hey, mom, I'm flunking out of school. And if I don't switch majors, something bad's going to happen. My mom would be livid. So I needed to like really kind of get myself ready for this conversation. I remember rehearsing in front of a mirror many several times to make sure that um, this was going to work. So I finally um, met up with my mom and I told my mom, Mom, look, you're not going to like what I'm about to say, but I, I'm about to fail out of school. And um, if I don't switch majors, it's not looking good for me. Basically, in Vietnamese, is like, what the hell are you saying? Right? I'm like, Mom, look, listen. So, um, I think I should switch to a much easier major, like English, because all you got to do is just read a bunch of books and write papers, right? And, you know, Mom, no, don't worry. I'll still go into med school, okay? But how do you think? When I apply to med school, they're going to look at my transcript and be like, oh, it's an English major. That's refreshing, right? The applicants are going to be like a bunch of science majors. But here you have one applicant who's in English liberal arts. Of course, they're going to take me in, right? It's refreshing. It's going to make their school a lot more diverse. I'm going to play the diverse card. <laughs> so my mom was like, you know what? That's actually a pretty good idea. Okay, gong lami, hung So that's what I did. Oh, boy. English during the first week blew me out of the water. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done, okay? And let me tell you why. In my first class, we spent about three hours just talking about the Mondrian theory. You guys know what the Mondrian theory is? It's basically um, this painting 
well, really, it's not even a painting. It's basically this picture of just a bunch of squares color in four different colors, red, white, blue, and yellow. And we spent about three hours talking about all different types of abstract philosophies, such as, um, you know, Orientalism, Imperialism, a bunch of other isms, right? And I'm here looking at everyone else in the room like, what the hell are you guys talking about? Am I am I stupid? Like, am I missing something? Was this part of the syllabus? Because I didn't see anything about that. Um, so that was the beginning of my journey as an English degree major. And so as the quarter starts to unfold, I start to get a little bit more um, comfortable thinking as an English major. Um, and you know what? I didn't really fully understand everything that we covered in class. But the one thing that I did uh, appreciate about coming from a liberal arts major is this idea of just constantly, constantly questioning everything, right? To not be so confined in just boxes and really kind of think outside the boxes, as cliche as that sound. But it really, it really forces me to be very creative. It really forces me to critically think. It really forces me to question and look at um, research paper and be able to back up evidence by... Um, looking at the right resources, it, it made me became a much better writer. Let alone, I still have horrible grammar, but that's besides the point because grammar can be learned, but writing comes from within. And so English has allowed me to continue to enhance my love for that passion for writing and for storytelling, right? And to be able to express ideas and concepts. So after I graduated from UC Davis, I... I kind of push healthcare to the side. And that was also another conversation I had with my mom. And I knew that um, this was something I wanted to do. I got a job as a associated producer at a public radio station in Sacramento. And it was my first job. It was a, it was a perfect haven, a perfect playground for uh, a journalist, new journalism person bright eye green eyes who are just really want to kind of explore every avenue that is to offer and it was one of the funnest jobs i had the opportunity to do one of the highlight at working at this public radio station was reaching out to many local celebrities and one of the local celebrities that stood out to me at the time was no other than mr ed asner oh you don't know ed asner ed asner you know, from the show, the Tylee Moore show, or maybe more contemporary, let's say the movie Pixar's Up, Carl Fredrickson. Yeah, that guy. I remember calling him on the phone to request for his um, presence on our radio station. Hello, Mr. Ed Asner. This is uh, Vincent from uh, uh, public radio station. Um, I just want to call. Who is this? Who do you want? I was like, oh my God, that's freaking Ed Asner. <laughs> I just remember I was like sweating my balls off talking to the one and only Carl Fredrickson. And I, I thought he was going to like throw his cane at me. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was such a fun job. And it it's something that I continue for the next uh, few couple months.
So three months have passed and I was, you know, figuring out the cadence and the workflow as this new role as an associate producer, kind of integrating slowly into things. And, you know, things were looking pretty good. I was, you know, still this bright eye, green eye, uh, fascinated journalist who wanted to go into every nooks and cranny and gather different field sounds and really kind of get my hands and dirty into this audio world of, of journalism, right? But I remember one particular day, and it was around, uh, right after lunch, I received a text message from my partner at the time. Uh, her name is Janet. And Janet texted me saying she wasn't feeling very well. In fact, it's been the worst that she has ever experienced. And so I've learned that Janet's white blood cells have been really, really low to a point of very, very critical. So Janet was diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And acute lymphoblastic leukemia is a type of blood cancer that is pretty prominent in pediatrics, but it can happen in young adults, right? So Janet was 20 at the time, young 20, 23 years old. And essentially what happens with acute lymphoblastic leukemia is that you have an accumulation of all these very immature lymphocytes that kind of takes up spaces in your bone marrows, in your blood vessels, right? Pretty much everywhere. And it can metastasize in various places of your body that can cause um, immeasurable damage. And so we need to figure out an alternative. At this point, Janet has gone through several different types of chemotherapy that wasn't really working for her. And we were really desperate. The family and I were really trying to figure out, you know, what's the next best thing. And so the only thing that we could thought of was to seek out clinical trials. And there was a clinical trial that was having um, sessions over in Houston, Texas, and it was one of the best cancer research center there. And so I had to really kind of think things through and made a decision to leave my job and fly out to Houston, Texas to be with her at the bedside because that's what I wanted. So there we were. We just got off from the airport and we took a taxi out to Houston, Texas. And I remember it was just like a really hot summer day. Got Janet on the wheelchair and then, you know, I pushed her right through the corridors and down into the hallway of the hospital. And I remember just getting this initial feeling of anxiety that just kind of consumes every part of my body. Everything was amplified. My, sen my senses were, you know, feeling the, the oscillating waves of doctors and nurses' clogs hitting the ground and just sends like this vibration to my feet. And my feet was feeling it. I was like shaking. And, you know, the, the sounds of IV beeping in every corner. And then you can have like this very, very clinical smell. Right? It's just like this very clean, uh, very monochromatic smell, which is not even sure if it's the best way to describe it, but like it just feels very clinical, very sterile, right? Like there's no life to the smell, which is funny because it's a hospital. We're, we're all about preserving lives, right? But I just remember being in that particular moment, being completely overwhelmed and, and anxious and fearful of the unexpected 
uh, outcome of this entire treatment, right? And maybe it's the first time that I've stepped foot in a hospital for a very long time. But for Janet, this was like the this was like a, a new norm for her. This is something that she went through every single week after week after week when she's getting chemo therapy infusion or getting checks up her labs, right? This is part of her life. And it made me realize how resilient she was to, to go through all this. So minutes become hours, hours become days, and days into weeks and months. I was seeing sort of the upwards and downwards trajectory of, you know, Janet's progress under this new treatment. During the first two weeks of receiving this medication, her, her responses went really well, actually really, really well. She started off with about, you know, 80% cancer cells taking over her body to less than 2% in just a course of two weeks. But of course, you know, that came with a certain price. Uh, she was going through a lot of neurological changes. She weaved in and out of her mentation. She was alert and oriented times four to just alert to herself and to alert and oriented to just time and place and self. You know, it just kind of fluctuates here and there. And just seeing somebody that you love at the bedside and you, you really can't do anything other than just making sure that she is okay. Knowing that's all you can do, but you can't really do anything from a clinical perspective was really heartbroken. You know, I remember late at night seeing her, you know, throwing up. I would get the emesis bag for her and then she would go back to sleep. And then only to be interrupted again with a lot of nausea and vomiting. And it was, it was very hard to see, right? I remember just watching her hands having these incredible tremors from the medication. And I felt like I was just watching her slipping away. But of course she bounced back. And she was very resilient. And, you know, we had our little, little small, big celebrations is what we call it. Small small big victories right things like her being able to stomach down her dinner or be able to walk a couple of steps from the bed to the bathroom i mean that was like a huge progress for us and we were just celebrating and having dances and parties um, when she's able to feel like herself and she's able to check her email and work on her campaign and trying to advocate for more stem cells within um, minority patients right i mean just seeing things like that and having her feel alive again those are very heartwarming things to see and it's and things that i really cherish and the things that i really fell in love with was some of the healthcare staffs that were by her bedside and it was particularly the nurses there and the nurses who spent their 12 hours in and out of her room really advocated for comfort and advocated for her well-being and really made those tough decisions in patient and physicians when things went to south. And it's something that I really take a part of me and something that I hope to incorporate in my practice too. But I just remember sitting there 
at the bedside watching this one particular nurse talking to Janet and really comforting her and deliver one of the best bedside manners ever. And it was something that I, I wished and I hoped to strive for in the near future. I think you should be a nurse. I remember her saying that. That was her exact word. I think this was around during the morning time after we had um, the nurse come in to check on her. And I remember saying, <laughs> fuck that. No way. There's no way I'm going to be a nurse. Forget that. The amount of stress to go into this job? Uh-uh. No, I think I'm just going to stick with being a radio podcast. I'm just going to stick with podcasts. I'm just going to stick with journalism, you know, new media journalism, all that jazz. I'm not thinking about going to healthcare. Uh-uh. Ain't for me. Not going to do it. Never in a million years. So after two months, it was around the very beginning of September, right at the very dawn of fall. And I was back at home in the Bay Area, and Janet was still in Houston, Texas, and she was going through treatment. And around this time, we were doing long distance. <sighs> Sorry. It's, it's just really hard for me to think about this, but... Okay, um... So around this time, she, she found a stem cell donor and, you know, we stopped with the treatment, right? So she wasn't doing the clinical trials anymore, but she happened to found a stem cell donor and it was, it was a nine out of 10 match. And it was something that, um, worked really well for her. Um, we were so excited because we tried everything we can to really find that match. I mean, this was a, a team effort, a collaborative effort nationwide, global, I would say, of all her friends and families who really helped out and advocate for her health and advocate for not just her health, but for the cause too as well. And making sure that we were able to find not just for Janet, but for many people just like her uh, donor matches. And so when she happened to found a donor match, this is like, this is it. We've done it. We've like worked up to this point to be able to find you a match. You're going to be saved. You're going to be awesome. It's going to be it's going to be incredible. I remember like our text message was sort of not very consistent. You know, we were so used to kind of texting each other every hour when we were doing long distance, but around September 10th. Um, I, I've heard that she passed away. Uh, sorry. I, I told myself, I told myself that I wasn't going to cry during this podcast and obviously it's I'm still grieving and maybe this is like this project is my way of um, kind of tie up some loose ends or or whatever you want to call it but uh, I, re I, I remember I remember exactly at midnight I received message that she passed away that she was developing a severe case of Graft-versus-host disease, which is a disease where your body just tends to reject a donor's tissue to part where it just causes incredible amount of inflammations. And her 
she was having multiple organ failures from this and I was devastated okay I I was angry at everybody who was at the hospital specifically the nurses and the doctors but I think I was really angry about myself because our our farewell wasn't really a much of a farewell I remember you know right before I left Houston Texas to be back home in the Bay Area that we sort of just kind of haphazardly gave each other a hug me knowing that she was going to be completely fine and I was going to see her again and I didn't really think twice about it I just knew that the stars were aligned and everything was going to be okay everything was not okay everything was not okay and I remember when I received that news at midnight from one of her family members I just didn't know how to process it I hung up the phone and I just ran outside my house this was a little bit after midnight I ran and I ran and I ran as fast as I can until I was tired and I think I ran about close to a mile away from home and I just plot on the cold concrete floor I just lay there and I just cried in front of some person's random house on the driveway and it was a mess and thankfully no one called the cops or 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 yelled at me and just allow me space to do what I had to do but I was just angry and try to find ways to kind of process things it was a fucking mess I yeah So those last few months after she passed away was probably one of the most hardest moments of my life. And I think I got hit really, really hard with that news. I lost over 20 pounds. I just didn't feel like eating. I was depressed. I was trying to find ways to really pick myself up. And I didn't really have the motivation to do so. Basically, my entire universe was crumbled. And to watch someone that you care about completely slipped and pass away was something that is not really talked about. Grieving was not something we taught. You know, we live in a society where, you know, we're taught to grieve for one or two days and then we're expected to get back to work. Where in other cultures, you know, we grieve upon weeks or months, right? Really honoring that person's life and making it making a new norm. But in the Western society, that's really unheard of. And so I really had to learn to grieve in my own way. I think what I did was I spent a lot of money on um, purchasing vinyl records and I would lock myself in the door and I would play a bunch of like sad, soppy songs. And I think the one that I played a lot was by um, Oliver Arnold. He is a Icelandic pianist who um, play a lot of like minimalism pianos. And I think it's something that allows me to um, kind of dig deep and allow some of those uh melancholic emotions surface out and just have these very long cathartic cries it was it was very therapeutic and it was the only way that i could um make sense of the world and make sense of my own experience so you know at that point i was unemployed i wasn't working i i just couldn't go back to work i've left the radio job at that time and i felt really bad having to leave very abruptly but i I knew that my health was the most priority thing and I need to really advocate for myself. 
A couple weeks later, I remember seeing a post online from a nonprofit organization called Asian American Donor Program that were looking for a social media uh, videographer to be part of the team. And essentially, the job description was to meet patients who experience cancer, blood diseases, leukemias, really go out there and capture their stories and piece together videos to highlight their own individuality and specialize on the importance of you know, finding stem cells for patients of color. And when I saw that, I knew that I had to do this. I knew that this would help to make things, make my experience a lot more um, manageable and maybe bring some new light into my life. So I send an email and I apply for the job and a little less than a couple of days, I got the position. I was a social media slash videographer for this incredible organization based in the Bay Area, a nonprofit organization. I, I happened to save up some money too to purchase some equipments to really, um, really invest in the storytelling, but this time with a focus into healthcare. And so I worked here for about three years and it was one of the best jobs I've ever worked with. I mean, here I was right at the bedside and meeting people from different age range with different rich life experience. I mean, we're talking uh, someone as young as two months old to a gentleman who was like in their 60s, right? And many of these people have such rich experiences. I remember uh, meeting this one patient who, you know, we really treat his cancer as like this villain. And I knew that he was a huge X-Men, Marvel superhero um, lover. And for me to help him visualize like what's going on with his body, we had to kind of create um, like the superhero slash villain uh, concept to, to allow him to understand. And man, this kid was bright. And uh, Or I, I remember meeting this one particular mother who um, had to leave her job as a marketer in the Bay Area to not only support her health, but also support her kids too as well. And it's something that was was very uplifting and very inspirational. And so, you know, this was one of those rare job opportunities that I get to, to, to really proudly say that to be part of a wonderful team and really advocate for such a great cause. I mean, I've met so many different people who were very passionate about, you know, fighting uh, against leukemia and really advocating for health equity for people all across uh, different levels of socioeconomics. So it was a very eye-opening for me. So after a couple of years of working there, I've really gotten to a point where I felt really emotionally drained. And I, I think it's really because, you know, when you're by the bedside and you're listening to, you know, patient stories and describing their experiences, I'm going to be real. I mean, there was a point where I just felt completely helpless that there's nothing that I can really do from a clinical standpoint. I mean, I'm hearing these stories and I'm, and I'm editing and piecing it together. And, you know, it's a, it's a form of public health education. But I knew that I wanted to invest more into this, and I knew that I wanted to make more of a direct impact to people's life. I knew I wanted to get into healthcare, but I wasn't exactly sure which area of healthcare or medicine that I wanted to go into. 
I knew for a fact that I didn't want to go into medicine. I didn't, or, or rather, I didn't want to become a physician was because I was at an age where I just didn't have the patience to put in 10 plus years into something and then finally start working in a clinical setting. I just knew I didn't have the, the patience for that. And let alone, I needed some type of balance in my life, right? Um, I thought about becoming a PA, but um, the reason why I didn't want to become a physician assistant was because I didn't want to spend the additional uh, 200 hours volunteering. Or is it 200 or 2,000? I can't remember. But just spending a lot of time to volunteer in a clinical setting so that I can finally apply to a PA. And I knew that would take me a couple years to get to that point too as well. I wanted to spend the majority of my time with patients. And I recall back when I was at the hospital taking care of Janet, it was the nurses that was right by her bedside for 12 hours plus. They are, in fact, the heartbeat of the hospital. They are patient's advocator. They are essentially, um, just think of like an octopus, right? They have multiple arms and they reach out to various different types of resources. They are the go-to person when people want to learn more about what's going on with the patient or with their family. The nurses are the one that's there right by their bedside. And that's what I wanted to do. It was funny because I didn't really know a lot of nurses that were men, let alone nurses that were Asian American men, let alone nurses that were Vietnamese American, right? That just seems like a marginalized of the marginalized of the marginalized, right? The minority of the minority minority. I didn't know anybody that was in the healthcare field. And I needed to have, uh, uh, you know, somebody to, to, to talk to and to, to pick their experiences and, and like a mentor. And so you know what I did? Kind of stalkerish, right? I went onto Lincoln and I typed in um, a school that I was very interested in. And I've only found one person that currently graduated from that school and is now currently living in the Bay Area. And this guy, his name was Andy Wing. So shout out to Andy Wing, who's currently in Oakland. And let me tell you something about Andy Wing. Andy Wing is not only just a nurse, nurse practitioner, but this guy is a creative and he's a break dancer, right? And so when I read his description, it was like at a turning point, right? Here we have not only just somebody who was very fascinated about patient care, delivering uh, nursing care to people, but also has a different part of himself, right? A different life. And not just a different life, but a different life creativity that really blends into nursing. And that was like somebody that I wanted to talk to because I felt like that was me or that is somebody that I can be just like too and maybe add more into the nursing field. So I sent a message to Andy and lo and behold, we met up at a coffee joint in San Mateo, or was it in the South Bay? I can't remember, but it was it was over at the Blue Bottle. Oh, this is in Palo Alto. We met up at Palo Alto and Blue Bottle. And when I look at this guy, I felt like I was looking at a mirror reflection, right? We were about the same height. We were both wearing, uh, you know, these like retro hipster glasses. We both have freckles. Um, we were pretty like well-dressed too. And, you know, we're both Vietnamese. And, you know, Annie is a well-established nurse and, you know, I've worked into the, in the creative um, field for a while into journalism, into storytelling. And, you know, both of us were kind of uh, leaning into kind of different areas 
in different spectrums of herself. Like Annie was rediscovering and trying to set foot into the creative world. And I was like stepping my feet into nursing. And it was like both both guys looking into a mirror reflection, both heading out to opposite direction and kind of pulling some of our old past experience to it as well. So I remember we were talking for hours upon hours and it was, you know, it was very, it was very refreshing to hear his, um, his experience as a Vietnamese American nurse as a minority and some of the the challenges and success stories that went along with it and so I took those and I really kind of put it close to my heart and to really wanted to bring that um, into my own life as well as life experience as a way for me to grow and so pro tip if you are going to nursing not only just nursing but if you're going to any other field that you're super passionate about find yourself a mentor and really hold them close to you because you know these mentors are going to be the one that really gives you it like just straight real talk no bullshit like tell you how it is because that's what andy was to me and that is andy to me today to this point so shout out to andy so at that point i have finished all my prerequisites and i applied to nursing schools and it was a very challenging and maybe i'll go more into depth about it but i applied to almost every single school in california and i got rejected and i knew that i had to try again and i had to re-strategize my plan so i applied to different schools across the country and i got accepted to a couple of and the one that i chose was linfield university up in um, portland oregon and i had many reasons why i think particularly i i love a city that is um very like introverty and allow me to explain like portland oregon has so many different coffee shops and it's a very like good indoor environment right it's because it's raining all the time so the city has to create itself where you know you're going to have a lot of people um, working indoors and i knew that like i didn't need any more distractions in my life and if i'm going to go into nursing school i need to be in an environment where i can be very studious and what best way to be studious than be at a coffee shop? So that was one of the reasons I chose Portland. Another reason why I chose Portland was because it's very close to home. It's very close to the Bay Area. It's about seven hours away. So, you know, I had these very personal reasons as to why I chose Portland, Oregon as uh, kind of my starting ground into the nursing profession. So I won't go into all the itty gritty details about my experience as a student nurse, but I would just say this. It was one of the hardest things that I've ever done yet, okay? And I think there's many reasons as to why. And partially, one of the reasons is, you know, I was a lot older when I went back to nursing school. And I'm not that old, but let's just say uh, 10 years younger, it would probably have been a lot much more easier because, you know, my brain was a lot more nimble when I was younger and I was able to um, take in much more information quicker. But when you're like in your late 20s to early 30s going back to school, especially nursing school, it was hard. It was definitely, definitely hard to juggle um, learning how to optimize your time on top of that, like working part time. I was working part time um, as a freelance photographer, trying to make ends meet and trying to pay for my my well-being. So there was a lot of there was a lot of juggling and sacrificing that had to be made. But let's just say I graduated. So I graduated nursing school in 2019, apply to hundreds of different jobs and I did not get accepted, but I finally got accepted 
out in Oregon, and now I'm working as a registered nurse in a telemetry step-down unit, which is also now converted into a COVID-19 unit. So what a great time to be a nurse in the pandemic time, right? But I will say this, you know, if it wasn't for all the experience that I had, you know, going through um, struggling with universities, changing majors from bio to English, going to working as a uh, associate producer in a radio station, losing someone, going through my depression mode, and then um, finding meaning and working at a nonprofit organization, and then meeting a mentor, and then going to nursing school and pass, you know, all these little stepping stones were placed for the very reason, okay? Everybody going to nursing at different intervals of their life. It's not a competition. It's not a race. You're not better than the other person in any way. The only person that you can compete against is yourself. And I was competing against myself to become the very best nurse that I can be. And I needed to have those experiences placed in my life for me to grow and evolve and be a better version of myself than I was yesterday. So that is my story of why I became a nurse. And I, and I apologize, it's a very long cathartic moment, but I hope you've learned something and hopefully it brings values into your own experience too as well. And you asking yourself the question about what exactly brought you into nursing? What exactly brought you into doing what you're currently doing? Hope you all taking care of yourself. Stay true to yourself, stay passionate, take care of yourself, wear your mask, and this is Nurse V, and you're listening to The Nurse Pod. So if you like what you hear, feel free to follow us on Spotify over at The Nurse Pod, or follow my Instagram account at Nurse V Sign, or send me a message, whether through the direct message, leave me a message on Spotify, uh, email me at nursevson at gmail.com. I'd like to hear your feedback. If you have any questions, if you have any suggestions on what you like to hear, whether it's about nursing, healthcare, or anything currently socially related, I'm all ears. I'm all open up to constructive feedback. So take care and thanks for listening. <laughs>